0: Guys, be seated. If you have a Bible, grab it and make your way to Luke chapter 12. We continue our march through the book of Luke. If you don't have a Bible with you, there should be one around you somewhere. We'll be on page 870 in the Bibles that are around you somewhere. One of my best friends in all the world is a guy named Kerry Vaughn. Uh, he and his brother Chris are both pharmacists. They own um, uh, Lake Country Pharmacy in down around Lake Oconee. Georgia, and one of the things they kind of specialize in is it is in compounding uh, pharmaceuticals and uh, not every drugstore does that. Um, we, we used to have to get some uh, a drug compounded went back when Eden was on 24 doses a day of 11 different kinds of medicines. One of them was compounded. And if you've got to get something compounded and really, if you just need anything, like amoxicillin, whatever it is, OK. You've got to go to the pharmacy to get that. Okay, I don't care how much Napa know-how that they have. You can't go to Napa and get medicine. You've got to go to the pharmacy. You've got to go to the drugstore. And when we look for meaning and we look for fulfillment and we look for satisfaction and purpose in life, finding treasure in the things of this world is just like trying to buy medicine at Napa. It's not found there. You can't get it there. I mean, the world is full of beauty and dignity, but it does not possess the ability to satisfy us. Nothing on this earth does. Not your cars, not your clothes, not your house. None of these things. They cannot satisfy us, but they can enslave us. Enslave us to a never-ending treadmill of trying to find joy and life in mirages. And you just keep running on that treadmill. Trying to find joy in leaky cisterns. And as we come to Luke 12, this is a freedom that Jesus is trying to, to bring to his disciples that we don't have to keep looking to that. We don't have to keep looking to those things. I mean, Jesus is on his way in Luke 12. He's on his way to Jerusalem. All right. They're, they're journeying there and the disciples are following him physically. And as they're following him physically, he's trying to teach them about what it means to follow him spiritually. What that kind of life looks like and the freedom that it brings. And so last week we looked at freedom. We looked at how the right fear of God will free you from the wrong fear of man. Okay, it brings freedom. And then this morning we kind of have the same idea here where where if we treasure Christ as supreme over all things, this will set us free from this never-ending treadmill of trying to find joy in mirages, in false hopes, in leaky cisterns. From metaphorically trying to buy medicine at an auto parts store. And so if you're taking notes of way we're going to make our way through this, where we're going to chop it up and organize our thoughts around this, is number one, we're going to talk about the foolishness of treasuring money. Number two, we'll roll into talking about the faithlessness of continual worry. And then number three, the freedom of treasuring Christ. And so look at it with me, page 870, or maybe it's 871 around you, Luke chapter 12. Pick it up in verse 13. Someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But he said to him, Man who made me a judge or arbiter or arbitrator over you. And so you've got a family dispute here. They come to Jesus. They want—I mean, this is all too common. All of the inheritance—we're going to fight over that. You know, people instead of caring for their 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 mom or their dad as they're lying in their deathbed, they're at home putting sticky notes on the things that they want. They're getting a big fight and all this sort of stuff it's going on here. Rather than you know jumping in and settling this, Jesus takes this opportunity to teach on covetousness. Verse 15, he says, and he said to them, take care and be on your guard against all covetousness for life's For life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And so this covetousness here, all right, 10th commandment in the Ten Commandments. And the idea of covetousness is just insatiable lust for things that you don't have or that you want more of. And what coveting does is it eclipses God behind things. Behind a care about things regardless of whether you've got a lot or you feel that you don't have enough, it's the same pull, and the pull is to value things more than you value God, to value things as supreme in your life. And Jesus is going to point out the sin of doing this, but he's also, just for our own heart, the foolishness of it, how, how it doesn't work, how it, how it, how it enslaves us. Because the commands that God gives are not like just commands. He doesn't, He's not trying to take joy from us, but He's trying to lead us into it. And so God's command not to covet, not to pursue these things, not to set our heart on all these things, is not a call for us to not have joy, but to actually find where it's at. Because these are leaky cisterns. They will not satisfy. Coveting, treasuring money, it robs us. And so verse 15. Again, and he said to them, take care and be on your guard against all covetousness for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And he told him a parable saying, the land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself. What shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I'll do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods and I will say to my soul, so you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you and the things you've prepared. Whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself. And is not rich toward God. And so again, number one, Jesus wants us to see the foolishness of treasuring money. Like like this guy, he he had set his everything in his money. His security, money. His identity, money. His joy, money. Just absolutely gripped by his money and by his own greatness because of it. I mean, just look at how inward this guy is. Look at verse 16. Look, note, note all the first person words. And he told him the parable saying, the land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, what shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. Eleven uses of the first person. This is what happens when you treasure things. You turn inward. You just think about yourself. Your holy trinity becomes me, myself, and I. That's who you worship. Now, from the world's perspective, this guy's legit. I mean, he's got so much wealth and so much cash, he needs to build bigger barns. And we in this room are very similar to this. Someone's like, what are you talking about? I'm struggling financially. Get some perspective. At worst, every person in this room, every person, is richer than 95% of the world. Most of us, 98% of the world. Perspective. Every person in this room. And like in the history of Christianity, American evangelicals are the richest Christians who have ever existed on the face of the planet. And yet we give less than 4% of our gross to the spread of the gospel, the work of the kingdom, the relief of the poor. A clear indication of where our real treasure lies. And so a lot of times we'll wind up being like, man, well just like this guy. I've got all this money. What should I do with it? I know I'll put more into my retirement because I only have five million dollars there. I'll get another Roth IRA. And I'm not against retirement. I put 10% away each month. I've got loads of life insurance sitting on me. So Sarah and the kids will be taken care of if something bad goes down. In fact, it makes me a little nervous sometimes because maybe they want something bad to go down. So I'm not against that. I'm not saying that, you know, not to do those things. I'm just saying you've been given an abundance, richer than 95% of the world for the glory of God. To not be a bucket that just seeks to get filled, but be a faucet that pours out. Somebody's like, yeah, Joe, but this is the American dream, it is. But when it goes down like this, and you're only thinking about yourself, I, 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 me, 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 you're not ever thinking about God, you're not ever thinking about others, you're not ever thinking about the work of the gospel, you're not ever thinking about the church, the relief of the poor, you're just thinking about yourself, trying to be a bucket, not trying to be a faucet. What happens then is that the American dream becomes God's nightmare. Life does not consist in the abundance of possessions. And so God says this man, you fool, you've given your life trying to get things so you can relax, eat, drink and be merry, which is the sum like sums up every single commercial. You fool. And so God's like, you've done all that. And here's the deal. I'm taking you out right now. And whose is it going to be? It's going to be gone. It's going to be divided up. I'm going to give it to somebody who will use it for my purposes. And all your stuff is going to be garage sale merchandise. You've wasted your life on that. Now, fool, it's time to give an account for all that I gave you. So what did you do with it, fool? And that same question comes down to us. We're going to have to give an answer. What did you do with all that God gave you? By toys. Trying to find happiness in things. And he never gives like a list of like, you know, how much you should have and how much you shouldn't have. That's not the purpose here. The purpose is what is your heart? Where is your heart with these things? What's your attitude with these things? Are you a faucet or are you a bucket? Because God's given us this gift of life and it is not. About accumulating things. Verse 20. This night, you don't know. This night, your soul may be required of you. And then whose will all these things be? One guy put it like this. He said, no sane person on his deathbed ever comforted his heart with his possessions that his life was well spent. No same person has ever done that. It is utter foolishness to treasure money. It won't satisfy. This man spent his entire life on this never ending treadmill of trying to get more of what already did not satisfy him thinking. Well, if I just get more of it, then I'll be satisfied. And that's what we do so much. We're not satisfied in this thing, but we think, oh, if I just get more of it, then suddenly it it will satisfy me. Then suddenly my life will change and it will just become amazing. And God comes in with all of His love and compassion because He's he's for you. And He says and He looks you in the eye, you are a fool. There's a day coming when we're all going to be six feet in the ground and then will be a time it will be time to give an account to god and while this rich fool while he was rich here he was poor there what about you i mean we're all debtors to god right we all owe a sin debt we owe debt for our sin and we can either pay it off ourselves in hell or we can trust christ and let his sacrifice in our place be credited to us. He died on the cross to pay the penalty that we owe. But it only becomes ours through faith. And so receive it. If you haven't, repent and believe. Turn from your sins. Turn to Christ. It's sheer foolishness to treasure money and not be rich towards God. A reckoning is coming. But not only that, again, Jesus is wanting to set us, you know, bring freedom to us here. And if we live a life that is based upon, you know, the abundance of possessions, even if you slap a Jesus bumper sticker on it, hashtag blessed. You're still pursuing the things of the world. If you live that way, not only will you waste your life, but you will also. And he wants to set us free from this, but you will also Render yourself gripped by anxiety and worry. Trying to lock down those things that you set your hope in. Because if they go, so goes your hope and your joy. So you'll be fretting about that. You'll be worried about that. You'll be anxious about that. And so look at verse 22 with me. And he said to his disciples, therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat, nor about your body, what you will put on. For life is more than food, and the body more than clothing. Consider, Side note real quick. Here, their greatest worry as it related to food was starvation. Not having enough. In our life, it's having too much. And a lot of times we treat food like we do God, or like we should God. We run to food for comfort when we're worried instead of running to God. Consider the ravens, verse 24. They neither sow nor reap. They have neither storehouse nor barn. And yet God feeds them. Of how much more value are you than the birds? And which of you by being anxious can add a single hour to his span of life? If then you are not able to do as small a thing as that, why are you anxious about the rest? And so this is a stinging indictment on our worry here, because Jesus is telling us that when we live this way, all worried, all anxious, that we are exhibiting little faith. Okay, what he's saying basically is that worry is inversely proportional to our faith. To the extent that we worry is to the extent that we do not trust Christ and take him at his word. So when we worry, what we do is we're denying God's promise. We're denying his wisdom. We're denying his goodness. We're denying his sovereignty. As Kent Hughes puts it, disbelief is the midwife of worry. It's the midwife of worry. Now, Jesus isn't saying don't be concerned. He's not saying when hardship comes into your life, just be stoic and emotionless and as if it doesn't, you know, like in the face of pain and in the face of heartache and in the face of confusion, and in the face of the unknown. He's not saying become stoic and emotionless, but he's saying a life of continual worry. Worry, 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 worry. is a life of faithlessness. And so if number one was the foolishness of treasuring money, number two is the faithlessness of continual worry. The faithlessness of continual worry. And what Jesus does then to help free us, to help bring us out of that, is he gives us two pictures to look at to drive home the fact that we can trust him and we can cast all our anxiety on him because he cares for us. And the first one is the raven. And I think that's key He didn't call out a nice, glorious eagle. He didn't call out a bluebird or a cardinal or something like this. He called out a rat with wings. They are nasty. They eat anything. Just nasty little birds. Often associated, if you think of it, with death or evil. Think about Halloween. You got witches, you got cauldrons, you got cobwebs, bats, and a lot of times blackbirds. You've got ravens. So there's nothing special about this word. No one has a raven as a pet except Maleficent. Right? Evil queen. And then Brooks in the Shawshank Redemption. A guy who's in prison. And so Jesus says, consider a flying rat with wings. Nothing special about it. They scavenge, they're ugly, they're nasty, they they don't store, they don't sow, they don't reap, and yet I feed them. Rats with wings. How much more then will I take care of you if you are my child? Jesus is tying together this idea of anxiety, all right, that that that, that comes with believing that if we could just get this thing, more money. A certain house, a certain job, a certain spouse, a certain this, a, cer- a certain college, get into a certain college, a certain car, cert- all this. If I could just get these things, then suddenly my life will shift and it will just become amazing. And when you believe that and when you buy into that, either consciously or subconsciously, there begins to be all this anxiety in you because you banked your life on getting that. And if you don't get it, what then? Or if you've got it and it goes away, what then? Like your life is banked on that. And Jesus is saying, consider the rats with wings. I take care of them. And the rats with wings. I'll take care of you. And then he turns to the lilies of the field. Things that are going to be picked up and burned because in, in Israel they didn't burn wood to, to cook in their ovens, they grabbed grass and weeds, and that's what they threw in. And so he's saying these things are gonna be picked up, they're gonna be thrown into the oven to so that so that there's a fire and people can cook their food. But yet I array them with beauty. Why are you so concerned about what you're gonna wear or what you're gonna eat? I mean, Jesus is saying there are things in life that are more important than a new pair of pants. Yet we bank our life on what we look like when to dress apart at times. And so we're saying these guys, lilies and ravens, they don't toil, they don't work. But God provides for them. That's not a call for us not to work. right, laziness and an unwillingness to work. I'm not talking about an inability that happens sometimes, but laziness and an unwillingness to work is one of the most heinous sins you can commit, especially if you're a dad. So that's not the point here. The point is that worrying over all this stuff, Jesus trying to, you know, hammer it, it doesn't do anything. It doesn't do any good. You can't add a single hour to your life. It doesn't help you get more done. If I worry, I worry, worry, worry about it. And then that's going to fix it. No, it's not. If I worry, worry, worry about it, maybe I'll get an extra hour of life and then I'll have more time to work it. No, it's not. And actually, you're going to wind up robbing yourself of time. You waste it worrying. And it shrivels the soul. And it robs you of joy. Over things that may not happen. Like you're presuming that they've happened and they haven't happened. I read this this week. Warriors feel every blow that never falls. And they cry over things they will never lose. You're wasting your tears. You're wasting your heart. Because if, you if, if you've are, if you trusted Christ as your Lord and Savior, you are a child of the King. And He holds you in the palm of His hand with tender love and concern. And He's for you. And He's going to work everything out for your ultimate good as He defines good. It may not look good for us. We may not understand how that's good, but He's going to work it out for our ultimate good. He holds you. He loves you. You're his child. No father in here should wish the worst for their child. And we have a perfect father who wants the best for his child. And so trust him. Trust him. And I'm not just preaching at you, I'm preaching to me. And one of my favorite things to do that just is helpful for me when I'm, you know, feeling my heart drawn to worry, like crossing over from a concern into worry and doubting his goodness and doubting his, you know, that he's for me and doubting that he'll provide and doubting his faithfulness and doubting his wisdom and doubting his sovereignty. One of the things is, is just to remind me of Like who he is, just to remind me he is sovereign. He is good. And and remind myself of his tenderness and his care and his grace and his patience. And how he walks with me and he walks with us through our fears and our anxiety with sympathy. I mean, he calls us out for it right here. Yeah, because he loves us. I'm not a loving dad if I don't call my children out for something that's wrong, but that doesn't mean I don't sympathize with them. He sympathizes with us in these things. This is one of the most amazing things and wonderful things about Jesus is his sympathy. See, unlike other religions' views of God's, where God's far away and he's never been here, we have a God who came here. He came into human history. Jesus became a man. He walked the earth. He lived a life. He was born as a baby. He grew up. He lived through all of these things. The book of Hebrews says, we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with us, but who has been tempted in every way as we have, yet never sinned. And so, friend, Jesus gets it. He's been here. He knows what it's like. He's felt it. And so when Jesus is talking about fear and anxiety, I want you to bring this down and, and think about like, what you know of Jesus' life. Like if you know the Bible, think. If you don't know the Bible, listen to me as I explain some of this. Who could possibly have had greater fears available to them than Jesus when he was on earth? I mean, even here, Luke 12, he's on his way to Jerusalem to do what? Get slaughtered on the cross for our sins. All right. In my place, in your place. That's where he's heading. And he knows it. He knows it's coming. He's been talking about it for the first 11 chapters. This is what's going to happen. This is where I'm going. Do you not think that's not frightening? And all we can see is the physical beatings and crucifixion. Not the invisible forsaking that God the Father is going to pour out on God the Son. And so through his life, man, he knows difficulty. He knows distress. People hate him. People want to kill him. But even through all of that, he still knows at the end of life, there's no relax, eat, drink, and get married. At the end of life, there's a cross coming. And so the night before Garden of Gethsemane, he's literally sweating drips of blood. Thinking about what's coming tomorrow. And so even as Jesus calls us out here for our lack of faith, he understands. He understands what it's like to suffer physically. You suffer physically, Jesus has been there. He understands what it's like to die. You look that in the in the eyes. Jesus knows what it's like. He knows what it's like to have people malign your reputation. To assume the worst about you. He knows what it's like to have your family think that you are insane. And disown you and turn their back on you. He knows what it's like to have friends that you can't depend on because his were always falling asleep when he needed them most. He knows what it's like to have someone you love and watch them sabotage their life, steal from you, betray you, and then kill themselves. Jesus knows the guy's name was Judas. And Jesus loved him and served him. Jesus knows what it's like to be single and the occasional groundswells of feeling alone that sometimes come. And even again, right here, Luke 12, Jesus is on the way to Jerusalem and he's broke and he's homeless. He's traveling to go get slaughtered. And so Jesus gets it. He's not some religious nut with a super cushy life who never, you know. You know who just calls out, you need to do this, and you need to do this, and he never lived it out himself. Jesus lived it. He gets it. And so verse 32, when he calls us, starts to call us to fear not, he's not just giving us something to do. He's trying to lead you in a new way of life that's good for you. Fear not. Fear not. He's trying to free us from this like just returning like a dog to its vomit over and over and over. Vomit of worry and anxiety over paper. Money and garage sale merchandise. And so he says, verse 29, and do not seek what you are to eat and what you are to drink, nor be worried. For all the nations of the world seek after these things, and your father knows that you need them. Instead. Seek his kingdom. And these things will be added to you. Like everything else will take care of its place. God will lay it out. Seek his kingdom. Fear not, little flock. For look at this. All right. Fear not, little flock. That means we are a flock. He's a shepherd. So fear not, little flock. We've got a shepherd. For it is your father. All right. So our father, he's a shepherd. He's a father. It is your father's good pleasure. Like he enjoys. It's not begrudging. He enjoys giving to us the kingdom. And so verse 33 kind of has an implied so. Sell your possessions. Give to the needy. Provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old. With a treasure in heaven that does not fail. Where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And so, if you want your heart to be settled and fulfilled and find rest, treasure Christ. There, there, there is freedom there. If you, re- like, if you recognize Jesus as your ultimate joy, as your ultimate treasure, as your ultimate satisfaction, you can never lose that. Everything else in your life, you can lose one phone call. And if your life is set in your spouse. If your ultimate joy is set in your kids. If your ultimate joy is set in your job. It's set in anything. One phone call. Set in you being healthy. Being able to walk. And then that's taken from you. But Christ, satisfaction, joy in Him can never be taken from you. And so number three then, notice the freedom of treasuring Christ. The freedom of treasuring Christ. It's freeing. Right? When, when he's your treasure, everything else pales. That's why people... I mean, I could give a litany of quotes, but two that have always stood out to me and I've shared them before. Outside of scripture, even Augustine wrote this, he said, you made us for yourself and our hearts are restless till they rest in you. You will keep running the treadmill, running the treadmill, running the treadmill, never finding it. Oh, if I just get more of what already doesn't, you know, satisfy me, but if I can get more of it, then I'll be satisfied around and around the treadmill. You go. Your heart will be restless until it rests in God. Boys Pascal in the 17th century said this there's an infinite abyss in our being that can only be filled by an infinite and immutable object. That is to say, only by God Himself. Temporal things cannot satisfy the eternal abyss that's in your heart. Ecclesiastes three talks about this that God has put eternity into the man into the heart of a man and is to drive us to him. The rest of will probably recall the U2 song. Still haven't found what I'm looking for. Why did Bono write that? And so the point is that it's only in God that you can find lasting enjoyment. I mean, like going to Solomon in the book of Ecclesiastes, this king who's beyond everything educationally professionally monetarily wisdom-wise just beyond anything we can imagine he has every conceivable opportunity to pursue every possible way of finding joy to the nth degree he has that kind of wealth and he does he pursues it all the book of ecclesiastes is almost like this giant experiment where he's trying this and 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 all the time he's like, it doesn't work. It doesn't work. Life is pointless. Life is meaningless. Life is meaningless. Life is meaningless. And then he realizes it's meaningless under the sun. But when you get beyond the sun. Life under and lived underneath God. It's a different story. Because one came from beyond the sun to break the treadmill that we live on. And that we run on. And that we keep chasing down like... Rats in a wheel. He came to John 10.10 10 give us life and give us abundantly. And so Jesus is saying in all these things, He's basically saying, listen, I know you're living and I know you're breathing, rich fool and continual warrior, but that's not life. That's existence. I've come so that you might have life. What I created you for. What I created you to do. And then when we get that, when we get Jesus as our treasure, then all these things that we spend all this time worrying about, they return to just being things. And they're not our idols anymore. They're not our masters. They don't rule over us. We're not enslaved to them. They're just things. They're just paper. And God's going to provide for me. It's just garage sale merchandise. People are going to give 10 cents for it when I'm dead. It's just stuff. And so we don't have to keep running on this continual bankrupt treadmill. Looking for fulfillment in leaky cisterns that can never hold the weight that we try to put on them. They will crumble underneath us. We're set free. Jesus has come to rescue us from our futility of all that and give us Himself. That's the only thing that can satisfy our souls. And so there's satisfaction to be found. But it's not found in the things of the earth. It's found in fearing God rightly. Valuing Him and His kingdom supremely. Okay, by, by being rich towards God. And so you can find it. You can have this satisfaction, but you cannot find medicine at Napa. You've got to go to the drugstore. You've got to go to the pharmacy. And so may we learn to set our satisfaction, set it up with an automatic refill at the pharmacy of our ward. And then out of that, live lavish lives of generosity. Like our father who loves to give himself and all the riches of his eternal kingdom to us. I mean, again, verse 32. Again, fear not, little flock. I'm your shepherd. For it's your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Jesus gave his one and only son Jesus is a God is a giver. God, the father gave his one and only son. This is who God is. He is a giver. And he calls us to be like that. Because if that's the way our father rolls. And and then he knows all that we need. Then let's live lives of crazy generosity. He knows what we need. And he wants to give us. He says, I'm pleased to give you the kingdom. So sell your possessions and give to the needy. From a financial perspective, he's saying both divest and invest. And so let's live lives of lavish generosity. I read this week, a preacher asked this question in uh, a, book I was, a book I was reading or a blog I was reading. And he said this, he said, ever wonder why 1 Peter 3.15 isn't coming true for most of us? Which is where it says, always be ready to give a reason for the hope that is within you. He said, "Has anybody asked you that recently? Hey, can you give me a reason for the hope that's in you? You know why? Why? It's because so often it looks as if we're hoping in the same things they are. The church in America is not what it ought to be. We've got to make choices for this globe. This, this earth that's racked with pain, is lost, is perishing, is suffering, is uneducated, has dirty water, is hungry, doesn't have medicine. We've got to think about how we are investing what God's given us. You fool! Right? What have you done with all that I've given? What are we doing with all that God's given us? Are we building bigger barns? Again, I'm not saying don't retire, but what are we doing? God has given us. Psalm 67. He's blessed us so that we might bless others. And so He holds us. He provides for us. He's got us in His hand. And so live as a faucet, not as a bucket. He's going to give you. He knows what you need. So he's going to give it to you. Give it away. He's going to give it to you. Give it away. How are you living lavishly? Get involved with Fadi Al-Hurik who is here. So we can get hooked up with immigrants who do not know Jesus. The nations have come here. 200,000 internationals. What are we doing to reach them? One of the things Sarah prompted our family to begin doing is something very, very small. But what if every single family did this? It would be like 125 kids, Compassion International kids, whose lives were changed. 38 bucks a month. I guarantee you, you waste more money than that in a month. We do. So now there's a little girl named Karina. That we get to talk to. You got apps. I mean, we can send daily, we can send notes. Support the church. If you're not giving, give. It's not, not, right? Go, Go to Central Asia this summer. Men, guys, we need a guy. Go to Central Asia. Divest and invest. Transfer funds into what is most important. Sacrificially give for the glory of God and the good of others and your own soul. Finding satisfaction in Christ and in Christ alone because it's the only thing that can truly satisfy. And so let's do this. Let's let's live like this. Or we just focus on building bigger barns and getting a new pair of pants and waste our lives. What do you want to do? The choice is yours. Freedom is there. But you got to stop shopping at Napa. Go to the drugstore. Let's pray. Father, forgive us for our idolatry in a lot of ways. Our finding in things what we are only to find in you. And help us, Father, to make transfers, to make change funds, and to find freedom there, and not be fools, and not be faithless, but find freedom and life and joy and fulfillment and satisfaction and forgiveness and freedom from shame and freedom from guilt, freedom from bondage, freedom from lasting fear. Help us to make wise investments. Help us, it's in Jesus' name, amen.